Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Infectious Dialogue, where we discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. My name is Naman. And my name is Gurinder. On today's episode, we're going to be picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago in our discussion about cancer and lifestyle factors that can lead to cancer progressing or developing, as well as those that can reduce the chances of cancer growing. Our interviewer Daniel spoke with Dr. Lorenzo Cohen and Allison Jeffries, who have co-written a book on the subject called Anti-Cancer Living, Transform Your Life and Health with the Mix of Six. In the previous episode, the guests discussed what cancer is and what the main hallmarks of cancer are. So just for a quick refresher for our listeners, the eight hallmarks of cancer are sustaining proliferative signaling, evading growth suppressors, resisting cell death, enabling replicative immortality, inducing angiogenesis, activating invasion and metastasis, reprogramming energy metabolism, and avoiding immune destruction. Keep these hallmarks in mind today as we talk about the mix of six, the lifestyle factors to focus on to live a more anti-cancer life. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thank you again for joining us. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Lorenzo Cohen and Allison Jeffries about anti-cancer living. And in the past half hour, we were talking a lot about the mix of six. And I bet a lot of you are wondering, what is the mix of six? I want to know what are these six lifestyle factors that we can change and we can adapt? So I was wondering if you could please outline what the mix of six is, and then we can talk about each one individually. So the mix of six is a comprehensive approach to health and well-being that focuses on six lifestyle factors. And those are love and support, stress, sleep, exercise, diet, and exposure to environmental toxins. All right. So let's, let's just dive right in. Um, so the first one you mentioned is love and social support. And in your book, you've described um, support as the backbone on which all other lifestyle changes will either succeed or fail. So why is that? Well, I think we can all relate to the experience where like, if we take diet, for example, we know that we might need to lose a few pounds or clean up our diets. And we decide that we're gonna start the diet tomorrow and we arrive at work and somebody's left in the work, the kitchen room, you know, a plate of donuts or it's time to celebrate somebody's birthday at lunch or drinks with friends that evening. And so really quickly, you can feel very defeated and guilty about caving and not being successful. And so, It's very important that if you decide that you want to make a change, and usually that change comes because you're at a tipping point. You know, you realize that you need to make change because something's happened and you're just, your body is telling you and your mind is telling you that you need to make a change in a specific area. And so it's really important that you harness a team behind you before you step forward so that you will be successful because there's nothing worse than, you know, stepping forward in that example and, and feeling that defeat. So you need a team of people behind you and those people help you in a variety of different ways. So let's suppose that you do want to make change in your diet and you have ne- you know, not been cooking vegetarian or vegan meals really and don't know how to do that. You gather a group of friends or you grab that work colleague who you know does that and you ask, can we together find recipes once a week that we will do together uh, at, our, at our homes and, and then talk about how it all went. So it's, it's finding that person. And when you're 
have a cancer diagnosis, you know, those people are people who drive you to uh, your treatments. They pick up your kids. They, you know, are your cheerleaders. They are the person that you can talk to about, you know, your deepest fears and your happiest joys. So they're different people because one person can't do all of those things for you. And if you're a caregiver, it's as equally important that you have your own team behind you. So it's really about looking and seeing where you need the support to step forward and be successful. So there's also another side to, to social support. What Allison just described would be what we call the more indirect effects. So how social support allows us to be successful, let's say in, in the other five areas of the mix of six. There's also a more direct effect of social support and, and we actually often see that from the opposite side of support, which is loneliness and isolation, where loneliness and isolation in and of themselves are actually quite toxic. And it's been shown in, in a number of different large epidemiological studies, many of which actually uh, come from England, that uh, being lonely and, and in particular emotionally isolated from others is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the health hazard. And the data is you know, so compelling that uh, in England with their NHS uh, socialized medical service, they've actually tried to develop interventions to target people who are, are lonely and intervene on that exact variable, getting them connected with groups or with individuals uh, to try and decrease that risk factor uh, for mortality. And we know that, that aspects of, of loneliness and a flip side of this, of eudaimonic well-being, the, the feeling of well-being that comes from meaning and purpose in life and, and connecting with others and giving of yourself and uh, having uh, a, a true purpose actually activates genes that control the cancer hallmarks in, of course, a positive direction where there's better immune function, decreased inflammatory gene regulators. Um, so this isn't just uh, what we think of uh, as kind of soft science. We can actually measure things like love and support and see how they impact uh, gene signaling pathways in the body. And again, it, it's, it's critical place to start to set yourself up for success. And in thinking about it in, in these times with COVID and with so many of us being uh, at home, there are really fantastic opportunities online to reach out to others or to volunteer your time. So no matter what your circumstance is, there are opportunities for you to give to other people which is as important as receiving. Well, that's, that makes a lot of sense how love and social support can really be the backbone and, and really important for working on all the other lifestyle factors and, and for treatment. And it's also very interesting how you can measure in the genes themselves how much of an effect social support or loneliness has on the body. And I think that ties in well to the next factor in mix of six, with, which is stress. So I guess the first question is, how is stress related to cancer? And earlier we talked about the hallmarks of cancer and how cancer does well in a state of inflammation. So is that related to stress? 
Yeah, definitely. And, and stress is sometimes, you know, people misinterpret exactly what we're talking about with stress. So, you know, we experience difficult things in our lives, challenges, um, loss can be viewed as a stressor. Um, of course, diagnosis of, of a life-threatening illness like cancer is a stressor. Unfortunately for you and your colleagues, medical school uh, exams are, are classified as stressors. And these are the difficult events that, that we experience in our life. And we have a, um, a hardwired uh, response to these challenging, difficult situations uh, that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, uh, the stress response, or more colloquially, the fight or flight response. Um, and this is our body's evolutionarily uh, extremely adaptive physiological and biological mobilization to be able to respond to these stressors. That evolutionarily speaking, we're typically uh, acute in nature, short-lived things, a threat to us, our environment. Um, and again, we would mobilize ourselves with an increase in heart rate and blood pressure, these stress hormones, a shunting of the blood from the central organs to the periphery, increase oxygenation of the blood. It's actually a change in, in our visual acuity. We can see long distances better because the change in the shape of the cornea. Um, there's a, a speeding up of platelet uh, clotting time so that if we were caught by that predator, we wouldn't bleed out. Um, now, the problem is, is that uh, acute stress response is the exact same response we have when these events become chronic in nature, uh, where we have a flooding of the body with the stress hormones, increase in heart rate and blood pressure, narrowing of the cornea but you're sitting there studying for a medical school exam or there's a grant deadline or you know even as benign as stuck in rush hour traffic and you're letting it get to you so to speak um, so it's when stress becomes chronic uh, where we see tremendous problems and extremely elegant research from the laboratory of Anil Sood as well as others uh, but Anil Sood's uh, a close colleague here at MD Anderson uh, has clearly shown that the, uh, and the, through manipulations, through, for example, the use of beta blockers, which block the stress hormone norepinephrine, that it is, is, it's either sympathetic nervous system activation or even activation in certain cancers of the HPA axis, which is activated during chronic stress, that creates a tumor microenvironment that's hospitable to cancer growth. Suffice it to say that, that chronic stress activates all the cancer hallmarks. It leads to increasing in angiogenesis, increased vascularization of, of the tumor microenvironment. It leads to, to uh, resisting cell death. It leads to an increase in, in anoecus, which is the ability of the cancer cell to, to break off, find a new home in the in in other parts of the body and to grow and metastasize. It even leads to something that's uh, more recently discovered, an increase in neurogenesis. So I described angiogenesis, the formation of new uh, blood vessels. Uh, there's actually evidence to suggest that cancer cells will form their own nervous system and an increase in nerve growth in the tumor microenvironment. 
the density of nerve growth in the tumor microenvironment is actually a, a prognostic indicator, not used clinically, but it's, it's clearly shown in multiple research studies. And Dr. Sood showed that, that chronic stress actually increases neurogenesis as well. So chronic stress is, is allowing the cancer to, to behave in an even more autonomous way in the body than it would otherwise if, if we get stress out of the picture. So that's very interesting to hear about um, how damaging stress can be, especially uh, the chronic stress and how that can contribute to cancer developing. And like you mentioned with exams and stuck in traffic, there are always going to be stressors in, in people's lives, you know, and a little bit of stress can be good, but we don't want it to, you know, become chronic and get out of control. So what are some good strategies that you would recommend to people if they want to help reduce the amount of stress that they experience? Well, choosing a, a mind-body practice or something to relieve stress uh, the one that you want to choose is the one that you will engage in daily. That being said, there are many different types that uh, you can engage in and many different types that you can engage in in a day. Depending on where you are, if you've had, you know, if you've received a cancer diagnosis and you're struggling, the gold standard would be cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, which helps you rewire to think more positively about your feelings and your emotions and your behavior and to change that. So if you need something that's more intensive, you might go that direction. If you're looking uh, to learn how to meditate, you've heard about it, you haven't done it, or you haven't uh, established a strong practice, taking a class with a friend. You know, after Lorenzo got diagnosed with cancer, Lorenzo and I had been meditating with our kids for years before school each day, five to 10 minutes. And we had done that and uh, very well and it had worked for us. But then Lorenzo got a diagnosis and as he came through treatment, I realized that I needed something uh, more powerful and something that would really help me focus in. So Lorenzo and I decided to together take a, um, a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. And that really helped uh, us together be able to meditate at home. And it helped me be able to kind of empty my cup, which is the way in which I often talk about it. You know, you feel the stress building and building and you really need to put into place things that help you empty your cup. And, you know, one of the, the amazing women that we uh, taught, that we share their story in our book is Molly. And, you know, Molly had a very um, serious diagnosis of a glioblastoma multiform over 20 years ago. And she did conventional treatment. And about six months in, she realized that that wasn't going to be enough and that she really needed some, uh, and that added level of support and a way to manage her stress. So she took a course through her hospital, which really gave her tools to uh, reframe the way she was thinking. Her father went around the house and stuck sticky notes with positive phrases and with ways for her to view herself in a positive light. She started a meditation practice. She had a faith practice that was very important to her. And that's another element and important place that people uh, can 
help with their stress. So she used multiple uh, practices or modalities in order to help her move through the day. I mean, even thinking of things as simple as every time you wash your hands, you really focus on washing your hands and the feeling of the water and the soap and the movement. You know, taking those three deep diaphragmatic breaths uh, when you're at a stoplight. So there are lots of different tools, not only the ones that are more organized, like taking a meditation class, but also these small little tools that you can use throughout your day just to bring the levels down. But the key is finding that support system first and making sure that you can be successful. So doing it with somebody else or making plans to, to be successful with your team. And uh, what's interesting when you look at these mind-body practices, and, and we study a lot of them in, in clinical trials at MD Anderson, things like yoga and Tai Chi and meditation, Qigong, a commonality is they, they all start with and focus on the breath. And, you know, Allison mentioned taking three deep diaphragmatic breaths, and as, as trite as that may sound, from a, a physiological and biological perspective, there is clear evidence for why that deep diaphragmatic breath should lead to an increase in parasympathetic tone and a decrease in sympathetic nervous system arousal. And it's because the vagus is, uh, gets innervated um, in the lower part of the diaphragm. So by dropping the diaphragm down, you're actually stimulating the vagus. Um, leading to an increase in parasympathetic tone and more of what we could call a colloquially a relaxation response. So there is tremendous evidence, again, all the way down to gene regulatory behavior, that even something as simple as, as deep diaphragmatic breathing and, and trying to defocus your mind just for a few minutes and ideally five minutes or more uh, but that has a profound biological effect. And if you do that at a number of times throughout the day, then again, you're helping to, to decrease the amount of, of uh, stress hormones that your body is bathed in throughout the day. And if you think about, you know, the way in which you feel with all of the mix of six, but if you think about stress and the way that you feel on the outside, that is actually having an effect at a cellular level. And so it's really important to remember that if I feel good after I've taken those three breaths, I've actually done something very positive, like Lorenzo has just described, to help my physical body uh, be strong and to, to, to work in its proper way. Well, I think that's really encouraging just to hear that even those small little techniques like deep breathing and, and writing those nice positive notes can still have a huge impact on stress relief. So let's move on to our next lifestyle factor in the mix of six, which is sleep. So I guess, why is it so important for the body to get an appropriate amount of sleep? And then how is that related to cancer? So um, historically, actually, it wasn't known uh, exactly why it was so important, but we knew it was so important because humans as well as other organisms that didn't sleep the required amount uh, didn't live as long. And, you know, to focus just on, on humans, those who sleep six and a half hours or less on average a night 
don't live as long as people who are more in that sweet spot of, of seven to nine hours. Now, you know, I know a lot of listeners are thinking, but I, I thrive on a little amount of sleep. And there are, of course, individual differences. Uh, but the evidence is pretty clear that uh, you, you could line up almost any disease around restricted sleep and see uh, clear associations. And when you go in and, and you look at more well-controlled sleep deprivation studies, uh, again, we start to see the biological effects of uh, restricted sleep time. And one of the interesting areas uh, is, is in the metabolism of uh, food. And we see from um, epidemiological studies, a clear association between uh, restricted sleep and, and not sleeping as much to overweight and obesity. And we now know from elegant research studies done in the lab that uh, sleep loss changes the way that uh, your glucose insulin uh, metabolism functions. Uh, so that same amount of food is going to lead to greater spikes in insulin and glucose, uh, a, a preferential uh, shifting of energy to fat to a higher degree than if somebody had a normal night's sleep. The other area is, is uh, not necessarily as related to cancer, except uh, that the brain is, is the key controller of all functions in the body, uh, essentially, is that during sleep, we activate what's called the glymphatic system. And, and your listeners probably know that this recently discovered system uh, is critically important for cleaning out uh, buildup refuse in the brain that happens throughout the day, including things like amyloid plaque. So we actually do know now uh, the mechanism whereby sleep deprivation is actually associated with uh, dementia as well as Alzheimer's. Um, and it's because the brain isn't given that time that it needs for the glymphatic system to be active, which is only during sleep. Well, I think that's, uh, that's really important to know and, and for listeners to hear about how important sleep is um, so students, if you're listening, uh, you don't need to <laughs> cram, you know, and spend all night studying. It's better to get some, some good sleep. Moving on now to exercise. Now, often when you go to the doctor, you talk, uh, they often recommend, you know, change your diet, do more exercise. So why is exercise so important? What are the health risks of living a sedentary lifestyle. So sedentary being kind of a less mobile, you know, less exercise full lifestyle. You know, again, kind of like sleep, uh, you know, we, we know that, that uh, too little exercise is unhealthy. And, you know, the health risks of, of sedentary behavior now are being uh, equated to similar to obesity and, and smoking. You know, if we layer onto the, the cancer hallmarks, you start to see some, some clear associations. You know, exercise leads to a decrease in inflammation, better immune system functioning, decrease in angiogenesis, better uh, energy metabolism. 
um, you know, let alone just, you know, the burning of calories. Uh, it actually sets up uh, our body to be inhospitable to cancer. And, you know, the data is, is extremely clear now. And, and in particular, when you look at cancer, there was a paper actually just published last month from uh, one of the cardiologists at, at uh, MD Anderson um, showing that I believe it was replacing 30 minutes of sedentary time with moderately uh, vigorous physical activity uh, dropped the risk of, of cancer mortality uh, substantially. So, you know, again, it's, it's creating a bodily environment that is not hospitable for cancer to grow and it allows the systems that, that we have, the multiple systems that we have in place to stop that mutated cell from growing. And, you know, a lot of the factors that we're talking about today, of course, uh, we're talking about them in the context of, of cancer, uh, but of course they're relevant for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, as I mentioned, and, and sleep for Alzheimer's. Uh, and again, exercise uh, helps to counteract the risk for all these different uh, diseases. So I think that's a really important point that not only are you trying to prevent or help treat cancer, but you're also with these factors and incorporating them into your life, preventing or trying to prevent a lot of uh, uh, different diseases as well. So I think that's very encouraging. And you mentioned moderately vigorous exercise. So I was wondering, what kinds of exercise do you recommend to people? Um, should they be running a, a marathon, you know, every weekend or could, you know, smaller forms of exercise also be beneficial? Definitely the smaller <laughs> forms of exercise. You don't need to be running a marathon. And in fact, starting with walking, a brisk walk is fantastic place to start. Um, you know, with COVID, we're all indoors. And uh, we regularly hold walking meetings, uh, either with each other or uh, with various people in our communities who are uh, at our work. Uh, it's a terrific way to get in, you know, an easy thousand to five thousand steps um, just walking outside. Uh, if you have a pet, it really helps to get out at least a couple of times a day. Uh, you want to think about your exercise in two parts, the aerobic and the strength training. And, you know, if you're in cancer treatment, you know, walking to the end of your driveway may be a huge accomplishment and that's where you want to start. Uh, if you're somebody who uh, is not is healthy and that is not the issue, then start by walking. Uh, now, you know, with gyms closed and if you don't have an exercise machine at home, it's, it's a terrific way to get uh, the exercise you need. And standing when you're at home. Uh, Ironing board is a fantastic table and you can spread out and it's a way for you to stay away from that sedentary behavior that Lorenzo was discussing. Yeah, and although the, the news is good that, you know, we don't have to all become elite athletes and even just a bit is, is better than none. Um, the, the data on sedentary behavior, independent of how much you exercise uh, throughout the day is, is becoming quite clear as well. So, 
you know, yes, get up and out, ideally 30 to 60 minutes, not necessarily all at one time, but then you literally just need to sit less, you know, throw your laptop on a, on a stack of books and, and stand up. Laptop desks for, that are adjustable to different heights are, you know, around 30 or $40. Um, and of course, as Ellison mentioned, just throwing out an ironing board, a, an empty box, uh, you got to just stand up. So, you know, studying, just stand yeah. up, you it's, know. It's important to really, you know, we speak a lot of, about not just somebody who's facing a cancer diagnosis or somebody who doesn't want to receive one, but also about the families and uh, the way in which we're all living. And so, you know, send your child to college with a computer stand-up uh, desk, which is so inexpensive. Uh, you know, encourage those that are in the house to stand up as much as possible. Uh, it really goes a long way and helps to help. And the literature in, uh, in, in, oncology patients is really clear. Patients who, who maintain an exercise uh, program throughout treatment uh, have improvements in all aspects of their quality of life. It is the key uh, go-to treatment for uh, both acute and chronic cancer-related fatigue. It's, you know, you, you see it somewhat as a circular uh, issue. You know, you're, you're too fatigued to exercise, uh, but if you're able to exercise, it actually breaks the, the cycle of fatigue. Um, and, you know, patients live longer. Um, again, you can line up exercise around any disease and people who uh, are uh, physically active have a lower probability of these lifestyle diseases and live longer after their diagnosis. Well, those are some great um, suggestions. And I really like the idea about, you know, having a pet is great because... Um, I live in my apartment and I don't always have my dog with me, but when I do, like I, I do at this moment, I go walking, I go for way more walks, and it, all, it also feels great. So that's, a, that's really encouraging. So for the next factor, the next factor is diet. And this is one that I'm always trying to work on myself and improve my diet. So what are some foods that are linked with cancer that you would recommend people avoiding? Well, that's actually the easiest <laughs> yeah. thing to answer. I mean, typically people think yeah. the whole diet thing is really complicated, but we're gonna hopefully simplify it. And people, when we're giving talks, get kind of scared when we're almost out of time and we're at diet, which is where we are now with you. Um, avoid uh, avoid uh, red meat. I know that people from Calgary are not going to be very happy to hear that. Uh, avoid processed meats. And I know uh, my Italian colleagues would be very unhappy about hearing that salami shouldn't be on the plate. Uh, but both, uh, in, in particular, processed meats, but also red meat, uh, they're, they're both carcinogens. And we kind of, again, know, you know the mechanisms whereby both of them uh, both these these food groups, let's say, set your body up for for cancer growth. Avoid uh, highly processed foods. So you know, sugar being one of the most processed. Uh, but even a processed food like white rice and um, white flour. You know, these white foods. You know, uh, potatoes. You know, some nutrients, but not the healthiest. Uh, of of the uh, the root vegetables, 
and we, you know, we don't really have time to get into the details, but essentially you want to be, you know, in addition to avoiding those uh, harmful animal proteins, eating a low glycemic load diet. You want to eat foods that aren't leading to these precipitous spikes in uh, glucose uh, because of, of the type of food or how refined the food is. And, the process, and it's processed by the body very quickly, leading to spikes in insulin. Spikes in insulin lead to inflammation. Inflammation is one of uh, the cancer hallmarks. You know, it's easy when you, you think about diet, and I'm sure many of us, all of us, might have had days like this or do have days like this, where you start off your day with a piece of toast, you then have a sandwich for lunch, and you have maybe pizza and pasta for dinner. And when you look back over the course of that day, it's really being filled with those white foods that Lorenzo's talking about. And there's been no vegetables, uh, no healthy proteins. And so it's really important to think about how can, what small steps can I make to have a whole food plant-based diet? And everybody always says that but it's really the place to start. And if you look at your plate each, at each meal, can you fill half of it with vegetables? And if you can do that and then have a lean and clean protein, you know, some nuts and seeds, or can you have lentils um, and uh, tofu and things like that to fill your plate? Uh, the more that you can eat like that, the healthier you will be because you're feeding your cells with the best food you can. And again, if, if you, you know, look at, at the tremendous epidemiological data that exists as well as uh, some of the clinical trials, um, we, we see that approximating not, not necessarily a vegetarian or even vegan uh, diet, but one that as Allison mentioned, where the majority of the plate is filled with things from the plant world, um, those people tend to uh, have lower incidence of cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, etc. And in fact, Alzheimer's is, is uh, a colloquial term they're using now is type 3 diabetes. So that kind of tells you the link between uh, you know, these in inflammatory factors and, and insulin glucose pathway that plays a role with Alzheimer's. And what we find is that people, it's not like Lorenzo was saying about becoming a vegan or a vegetarian. It's just including more of that on your plate. And the more that you include, the less of the other stuff that ends up being on your plate. And we often talk about the 90-10 rule where 90% of what you eat is health sustaining and 10% is either neutral or health depleting. And so if you think about your day uh, and or your meal and what you're eating to set it up like that, sort of a guidepost to help you. And you know, an, an, an important component uh, is and this word brings us back to aspects of stress and meditation is, is mindfulness and being mindful when you're engaged in your eating. We talk about this uh, in our book that, you know, you can sit there and you can eat a whole bowl or pint of ice cream mindlessly in front of television and not even notice that you ate it. Or you can 
uh, just take a tablespoon of ice cream and eat it in a very deliberate, mindful way um, and actually you know, feel more satisfied than, than uh, the former. The last thing to mention uh, about diet is the microbiome, which I'm sure most of your listeners are, are learning about uh, now, um, if they haven't already, which is the, the microbes, the bacteria, the fungi, etc. these passengers that are non-human that live on and in us and primarily in our gut, uh, which numbered, the estimate was higher uh, a while ago, but I think it's now about a one-to-one -one ratio is the estimate of uh, non-human cells to human cells. Uh, the microbiome will actually influence our risk of cancer. Uh, and importantly, in data that was published from MD Anderson, actually with melanoma patients, and we have a paper under re-review now, uh, of which I'm not only the principal investigator, but also a patient in my own study, is that the, the essentially the diversity of the microbiome is a, a very strong predictor of response to immunotherapy, the treatment that I underwent. And we found in this paper that's going to be coming out soon that patients who had the, the highest amount of fiber in their diet had close to a five-fold increased response of responding to immunotherapy. Um, this has piqued the interest, of course, of drug companies. Uh, if you can show you know, a five-fold increase to their drug, that means the patient's going to be on these multi-million dollar drugs for a longer period of time than if, if the treatment didn't work. Um, and you know, what's the best place to get and to modify the microbiome? Uh, it's, it's from your diet. And what does that diet look like to make a diverse microbiome? Well, it's essentially eating uh, a diet that's rich in, in variety and in particular soluble fibers, and that's exclusively foods from uh, the plant world. I wrote about uh, my experience in some of this research in an op-ed uh, in uh, the Wall Street Journal last year. So it's just key to, to having uh, a diverse microbiome is eating really a whole food plant-centered diet. And if we look around the world in particular, you, you, where do we find people who have the healthiest microbiome is when we go to the extreme and we look at some of these hunter-gatherer uh, that still exist today in, in uh, the Amazon as well as uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And they're eating these very traditional uh, diets. The good news is that you can change the makeup of your microbiome in, uh, in the order of two weeks. You can also change it for the negative uh, as fast as in two weeks. And there was a brilliant study done um, out of the University of Pittsburgh that included African-Americans in Pittsburgh and Africans in rural South Africa. And they, uh, the rural South Africans were eating this, you know, plant-centered high-fiber diet. They measured the microbiome, did colonoscopies, looked at the African-Americans in, in Pittsburgh who were eating you know, highly processed standard American diet, did the same assays, and then they switched their diets for 14 days, just 14 days. And 
the changes are, are astounding that in that short period of time, you essentially turned the South Africans' uh, colon and gut into this environment that uh, was clearly going to be hospitable to growing colon cancer. And uh, of, of course, the beneficial effects were seen for the African-Americans in Pittsburgh in that just short period of time, increase in microbiome biodiversity, a decrease in inflammation, a decrease in, in proliferation markers in the colon. So uh, the evidence is, is really clear and forget about all these complicated diets. It's as simple as eating you know, a low glycemic load, whole food, plant-centered diet. Well, that's incredible uh, research, and that's really interesting, especially the um, microbiome study that you just talked about. I'm also happy to hear that you don't have to become vegetarian or vegan because uh, even if even though it's a carcinogen, I still enjoy eating a steak uh, from time to time. But I do remember the line about how half your plate should be vegetables from your book, and I'm trying to do that more often myself. So I guess we can move on to the last factor in the mix of six, which is the environment and toxins in the environment. Now, when people think about cancer and toxins, one thing that often comes to mind is cigarettes, you know, especially like, for example, how cigarettes contribute to lung cancer and several other different cancers. So I was wondering if you could talk about how do toxins in the environment relate to cancer and what are some toxins other than cigarettes, but also cigarettes that can lead to cancer? Uh, well, you combine cigarettes with alcohol and then you really have the perfect storm, but both of them in and of themselves are linked with about a dozen uh, different cancers. So, you know, yes, alcohol is not just related to what you would think of maybe stomach cancer, bladder cancer, but it's also linked with uh, breast cancer and, and other factors. Um, and these are relatively modifiable uh, if, if, you know, we get over these addictions. When it comes to other environmental toxins, it's harder to control them. And they really fall into two categories, uh, carcinogens of which alcohol and, and tobacco uh, are some, something like asbestos. Uh, these are substances that, that actually cause DNA damage. Um, and the more DNA damage and the more cells that, that are housing DNA damage, the higher the probability those cells are going to replicate and go unchecked in the body, the uncontrolled cell growth, aka cancer. The other set of uh, environmental toxins that are much more challenging to get a handle on are what are called the endocrine disruptors, endocrine disrupting compounds, EDCs. So these are compounds that actually will modify the normal function of our hormone system, our endocrine system. Things like uh, BPA, that is the chemical that is uh, used in plastics to make it more malleable. Things like uh, triclosan or the parabens and the other bends that are uh, used in personal care products as preservatives. Something as benign as this phrase that you'll see on personal care products uh, listed uh, is just this 
word fragrance. Well, what does fragrance mean? Well, is a low number, uh, does, does a, below a certain threshold of, of chemicals where they don't even need to be really listed. And so they're all kind of bundled under this term uh, fragrance. So the concern is, is that things uh, like BPA and endocrine disruptors disrupt hormone function and will increase the risk of certain cancers hormonally mediated in particular, such as prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, etc. And you know, the, the challenge and what the industry will counter is that these substances are in such low levels that it's not a big deal. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, that exclusive dose that may have been studied in the lab um, may not be a big deal, but daily exposure and daily exposure starting in utero uh, has certainly never been studied, let alone the chemical soup that we are all living in. Uh, that is very hard to study from a scientific perspective. And you know, with over 80,000 chem chemicals uh, out there and eight to nine percent have maybe been studied, we really have to look at each thing that we can control and use what we call the precautionary principle, which is that until you know that it's being tested and deemed safe, that you do not use it or you try and use as little of it as possible. And so if you look at from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, everything you put on and in your body, you know, can I evaluate it? There are great websites and the gold standard is the Environmental Working Group, ewg.org, that will rate different products and tell you about how safe they are and tell you what the chemical is that might not be safe so you can evaluate if you want to use it. You know, things like Think Dirty Shop Clean, which is an app which will read the code on the back of an item and tell you what is known about it. And if it isn't in the database, you can photograph it and, and enter it and they will, uh, you know, put it into their database. It's very important that you just evaluate everything that you're bringing into your home, uh, that you're using in your car, um, that you're using on your furniture to clean your house, and just evaluate, can I get a healthier version of this? And it's not that you throw everything out now, it's that you slowly change things out as you use them up. So it's just, it's a, it's a challenging area because you, we only can control so much, but that what we can control has an impact and especially for uh, young people. So if you have somebody in your household going through puberty, it's very important that you try and restrict as much of this kind of uh, toxins or these toxins as you can. Yeah, and a lot of, you know, the evidence isn't, isn't clear on this, but a lot of the hormonally related cancers, uh, it's hypothesized that they've kind of is starting to establish themselves during early adolescence and adolescence, like breast cancer and prostate cancer. And that's really where we can have the biggest impact on things like diet and decreasing environmental exposures, in particular the endocrine disruptors, because they're, they're, they're in it for the long haul. And there was an estimate from a, a paper published in Cell a couple of years ago, they did this sort of mathematical modeling that 
the original mutation that led ultimately to the clinical diagnosis uh, of a renal cell carcinoma, a kidney cancer, took about 50 years. So, you know, you may be getting kidney cancer when you're 50, but it's when you were 10 that first cell mutated and was slowly allowed to grow and proliferate in the body. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that information. I have one final question, kind of summarize a bit what we've talked about. So why uh, do you recommend a mix of six? What if a patient only wanted to focus on one or two of the lifestyle factors, but disregarded the other ones? So what would, so why recommend doing all six? Well, you know, there's a synergy that, that happens. Um, we, we haven't talked about what negative synergy is, or maybe we've touched on it, but you know that you don't sleep well, you get up in the morning, you skip working out, you have a carb-heavy breakfast, and you treat your loved ones poorly, and sort of the day continues. What you want to do is create that positive synergy amongst all of the mix of six. And so by you know sleeping well you wake up refreshed you're more inclined to take on that exercise to choose a healthier alternative uh, for breakfast and so on but it's also that you know this is a huge area and you are not you know we do not we cannot be perfect in every area we can't be perfect in in one area but what we can do is take those small steps and so if you think about your life and you look at these six areas, you could say, well, sleep isn't an issue for me, for instance. So I'm okay with sleep. I can focus on, on diet and maybe stress I need to focus on so that you can put your energy towards those two areas. But understanding that your sleep is actually feeding and helping support your overall health at the same time as you working on diet or stress. So it's really just you know keeping those balls in the air and making the smallest of changes has a real impact. And, and the challenge of not doing them all or as many as you can, or at least touching on the ones that are uh, causing you challenges is that they will uh, end up sabotaging your good intentions on the ones that you're engaging in. So for example, one of the ones that people tend to forego because it's so difficult is stress. So they'll exercise, they'll do their diet and they'll say, you know, well, that's good. At least I'm doing those too. And that is good. And it's better than not engaging in healthy diet and exercise. But chronic stress is great studies that actually show it'll decrease the beneficial effects of a healthy meal. We know, as I mentioned, that sleep loss actually changes the way that food is metabolized in the body and will decrease motivation to exercise. So they're all interrelated. And the more that you engage in, in each of them in a healthy way, uh, the easier it is to be successful in each of them. And again, at the biological level, they're gonna be creating synergy in your system, making your body as inhospitable as possible to cancer growth. So I think that's so important um, to talk about is, is how you wanna incorporate all of them. So just to reiterate, the mix of six are love and social support, stress, sleep, exercise, diet, and toxins in the environment. So it's important to think about all those factors in leading a healthy life. 
So I want to thank both of you so much for joining me today. I found this incredibly interesting and I'm sure our listeners will as well. I once again learned so much and I feel like we even, you know, we talked about a lot, but we just scratched the surface because there is so much information that you both wrote about in your book. And I highly recommend that if anyone enjoyed listening to this uh, episode today and learned a lot from it, to check out their book, Anti-Cancer Living, Transform Your Life and Health with the Mix of Six. So where can they go if they want to learn more information from, from you both? And, and if they want to purchase the book, where can they find that? Well, the book is uh, available at all bookstores in both Canada and the United States and around the world. The book is also available in 13 languages. Um, so if you have family who are outside of the country or you speak a different language, your first language is in another, it might be available in your language. We, can, we also have a website called anticancer-living.com where you can get more information and reach out to us uh, if you'd like. Uh, and we really hope that this uh, book can be a tool for cancer patients as well as those who want to avoid a cancer diagnosis and be something that uh, physicians can refer uh, to their patients, uh, knowing that it's science-based uh, with strategy. Well, we are going to put those links in our website for people to find. So once again, um, Dr. Lorenzo Cohen and Allison Jeffries, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Wow, what an incredibly fascinating discussion that we just listened to. Yeah, I agree. I think it's always really valuable when you can have some real executables that you can leave a show with and uh, try to integrate that into your life immediately. I mean, some of these things are things that I can start tomorrow morning with. So very excited to explore some more of that. All right, Gurinder, I think we should get into our fact check where we try to further explain some concepts talked about in this episode. And I think that there's plenty of stuff that those discussed in this episode. So apologies that we don't get to everything. Uh, but here are some facts that we think that were important to clarify. Yeah, to get us started, I think it's important that we go over some of the separations of the nerv nervous system that we mentioned. The sympathetic nervous system is turned on when dealing with a stressor and helps us prepare for something like a fight or a flight, per se. On the other hand, the parasympathetic nervous system is our colloquial rest and digest system and causes the opposite effects when we are not dealing with a stressor. Next, we'd also like to talk about what glioblastoma multiforme is in relation to patient Molly's story that they discussed in the interview. Glioblastoma multiforme, or GBM, is the most aggressive type of cancer that begins within the brain. It is incredibly invasive and rapidly growing, commonly spreading to nearby brain tissue. It is also quite atypical compared to other brain cancers, which tend to be more slow-growing cancers. So I have a little bit of a confession to make. I had never heard of the glymphatic system until this podcast. So if there's one thing I'm taking away, it's that the glymphatic system is a thing and I'm very appreciative that it exists in my body. But what is it exactly? Well, the glymphatic system is a specialized system of perivascular channels formed by astroglial cells to promote efficient elimination of soluble proteins and metabolites from the central nervous system. Besides waste elimination, the glymphatic system may also function to help distribute non-waste compounds such as glucose, lipids, amino acids, and neurotransmitters related to volume transmission in the brain. 
We've also linked a paper down below that goes into a deep description of exactly the system we just described. I'll also be honest, Grinder. I had to look that one up myself. Uh, finally, I think this uh, segues nicely into one big thing we'd like to reiterate to our listeners is that health and well-being is extremely multifactorial, and there's no magic formula to live a disease-free life. Our guests have shared ideas and strategies to optimize one's wellness, but there are many ways people can choose to live their life to bring them health and wellness and whatever that means to them. We encourage everyone to do their own research, ask the hard questions, and push our scientific understanding forward. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'll have some links down below to some of the studies that we mentioned, as well as those we didn't get a chance to talk about, but we think are important to review. Also, we'll include a link to the book in case it's something that you would like to purchase. Thank you once again to Dr. Lorenzo Cohen and Allison Jeffries for joining us and educating us about such an important topic. If there's another topic you'd like us to cover next, send us a message or tweet at us. Let us know what changes you will make to lead a healthier life. Please follow us on the ID podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We would also like to thank Daniel Borens for creating and editing this episode. We would also want to thank the rest of the team as always. Naman, Lucy, Isabella, Prasida, Mike, and myself, Gurinder. Thank you for tuning in to Infectious Dialogue, where we discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. Stay safe, everyone.